before we get started in our message this morning, going to dismiss our children uh, downstairs with uh, Mr. Dewey today. So praise God for what will take place down there. Grab your Bibles today, Judges chapter 6. We continue our series in Judges, the God who delivers. And uh, yeah, I want you to turn right there. We have uh, significant portions of scripture to read. Uh, so I want to have you attentive to those things. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can follow along on the screen. Or of course, uh, your uh, smartphone may be helpful as well. But nonetheless, be engaged this morning and uh, be attentive to the reading and preaching of God's word. I trust it will transform you today. What a spectacular uh, course of events with the 12 boys in Thailand, right? I can't remember exactly when all of this came to kind of a conclusion recently, but it was uh, quite uh, a scenario that they found themselves in. They had traveled in this cave, narrow passageway, and then the floods came and they were stuck. Right, and days uh, became week, a week, if not more, I think it was a couple weeks, where they found themselves stuck in a place that was dark and, and, and uh, without, with at least decreasing levels of oxygen, and uh, because the water levels had risen, there was no way for them to get out. They were stuck, and their life was in great danger, trapped in this cave. They needed someone to rescue them. As we turn to the book of Judges this morning, I couldn't help but think of that and recognize again that the people of Israel find themselves in a place where they're trapped, they're stuck, and if someone doesn't rescue them quickly and powerfully, they will indeed uh, uh, be uh, destroyed. And so here we are, the people of Israel are overpowered by the hand of Midian. And the question for us this morning, as we approach every one of these uh, passages and narratives, is what will the Lord do when his people are trapped, stuck under the oppression of these nations? Let's turn to Judges chapter 6 and read this with me. We're going to read verses 1 through 10 to get started. Verse 1, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep, or ox or donkey, for they would come up with their livestock in their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste to land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt, and I brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. 
You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. On the surface, uh, the cause of Israel's cry is Midian. On the surface, they have been oppressed for seven years now. The text says that they've been overpowered. So overpowered and overwhelmed by the strength of Midian that uh, who came in with their armies and their camels and their livestock, and every time the harvest would come, they would come in and they would basically steal from them and rip them off and, and, and leave, leaving them with no sustenance. So they were so overwhelmed and so overpowered that they literally made caves and dens into the rocks so that they could hide. Because they would come and devour the land and leave them with nothing. The text says that they were brought very low. Things were really bad. They weren't just having a bad day. They were having an awful life. It stunk for Israel because of the overpowering enemy known as Midian. But as we read the text, we come to the realization that there was some other issue below the surface. There was a a deeper source of the cry that they gave to the Lord for help. It wasn't just Midian. There was something deeper that was going on in the nation of Israel. You could say this. That the source of their oppression was less like a mole, something on the surface, and more like melanoma. They had a spiritual cancer That was destroying them as a people. Below the surface, we come face to face with the fact that the consequences that they were dealing with, the life that they had, was a result of verse 10, their disobedience. But you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord. You've not obeyed my voice, verse 10. They did not obey. Verse 1, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What does that mean? Based on our understanding of judges, we know that they went into the promised land and instead of removing those people and their values and their gods, they adopted them. And they began to abandon the ways of the Lord and worship and embrace the gods of the culture around them. Not unlike a day in which we live, is it not? And God said, if you do that, if you don't fully obey me, I'm going to give you into the hands of the people that you are embracing. The gods that you long to worship because of their convenience and their comfort in the land in which you live. And so what we see is that the root issue is their sin, their disobedience, the rejection of the word of the Lord. And so Israel finds itself in a place of being overwhelmed, not because necessarily they're weak, but because of their sin. God handed them over to the people of Midian. And so what we see is that they're living in the reality of what Ravi Zacharias once said, that sin takes us farther than we want to go and makes us pay more than we want to pay. Some of you know exactly what that's been in your life. Sin, as you've embraced it, as you believe the lies of the enemy, that disobeying the Lord will lead to a greater sense of happiness and joy in this life, you found yourself going farther than you ever would have anticipated and paying a cost that you never would have wanted to pay. Some of you understand 
what that's like and have felt that. And so the people of the Lord cry out. And the question is, does God hear? The text tells us how the Lord responds. What will the Lord do? Verse 8 says the Lord sent a prophet. Really? How about some guns? How about some camels? How about some food? It would seem on the surface that the Lord is confused about what they really need. And yet the Lord sends a prophet because he understands the root cause of the things that lead us into the consequences that we face. Because he understands the depth of our nature, he sends us what we really need. Not something on the surface to deal with just the physical realities, right? But something to deal with the spiritual realities. And that is his word. The Lord sends a prophet. He sends his word. He says to them, listen. This is what I've done for you. And I called you to abandon those gods, to not embrace the values and ideals of the culture around you, and you have not done this. The Lord has been faithful to his promises. If you do not obey my voice, this is what I will do to you. I will give you into the hand of your enemies, and I will test to see if indeed you will be faithful to me. And then he speaks to us. Albeit what it seems to be uncomfortable and confrontational, he speaks to the people of Israel out of the truth of his word. The truth of the matter is, you're in the situation that you're in because you have refused time and time again to obey my voice. The Lord speaks to his people. He hears their cry, but he speaks to them on the basis of his covenant faithfulness. Not on the basis of theirs. These people deserve to be abandoned. And yet it is the Lord taking the initiative by sending a prophet. By speaking his word to his people. And I think as we read this, we come face to face with this fact. That the word of God is what we need when we find ourselves in the depths of our sin. We do not need a vacation. We do not need some amazing spiritual experience where we get goosebumps. We do not need a glass of bourbon. We do not need a beer. We do not need a raise at work. We do not need a new spouse. We do not need a bigger home. We need the Word of God. God gives us His truth. And God's truth is that which sets us free. Amen? Some of you here today are dealing with very difficult circumstances. Maybe the hand of someone else's sin. Maybe uh, the source is your own sin. Maybe it's just because we live in a fallen, sinful world and bad things happen to good people. I don't know. But I want you to understand this. Wherever you are in your life right now, what you need more than anything is the Word of God. You're scratching and clawing for something out there And in doing so, you're rejecting the sufficiency of the Lord's word. And he says, no, my word is sufficient. Trust in my word. My promise is enough. My revelation is is adequate for the situation that you're in. Turn to it. Trust in it. Rest in it. Don't turn to anything else, nor add to it. My word is enough. So he speaks to his people on the basis of his faithfulness, even though we do not deserve it. But not only this, we see that he's not just hearing and speaking, but he's also calling his servant. And there we turn to verse 11 in Judges chapter 6. would invite you to follow along with me. 
Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, I'm... My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. And so Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat. And the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. And then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. And to this day it stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Bezrites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family, the men of the town, to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon. The son of Joash has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die. For he's broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself. Because his altar has been broken down. And therefore on that day Gideon was called Jerubbaal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of these came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped at the valley of Jezreel 
But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And he sounded the trumpet. The Abizrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh. And they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. And they went up to meet them. And then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, Behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung out enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. And then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Let me test just once more with the fleece. Please, let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. This is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, amen, amen. So the Lord speaks, the Lord hears, and now we see, as he's done in the other narratives and judges, he raises up a servant. The Lord... hears us, and the Lord calls his servant to carry out his saving intention. The Lord appears to Gideon and says to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Verse 11 and 12. Verse 14, the Lord calls Gideon, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? The Lord is calling his servant to carry out his saving intention. But like many servants of the Lord that are called throughout the Bible, what do we immediately see in Gideon? Hesitancy to obey, right? He doubts the Lord's presence. He doubts the Lord's plan. He's hesitant to obey because he is struggling to believe that God could be with him, that God could be with Israel, because he is the weakest of his clan. Gideon right away shows his obvious wrestling, the tension in his heart. He's hearing the call, but not so sure he can believe it, right? If the Lord is with us, then why? Where are all his wonderful deeds that our leaders have told us that happened in the past. Let me tell you what I think. The Lord's not with us. The Lord has abandoned us. In the midst of this overwhelming experience, when the going got rough, when the going got tough, based on the severity and the intensity of the difficulty of his circumstances and all that he saw around him, he said, I do not believe the Lord could possibly be with me or with the people of Israel. And I wonder if many of us in our lives can easily identify with the struggle. We look in the world and see the struggles and the injustices and the difficulties and the obstacles and all the suffering that we face. And we can easily conclude on the severity of our circumstances rather than on the simplicity of God's word. We can easily conclude the Lord is not with us. It's easy. To doubt the word of the Lord 
when our circumstances are harsh. Can someone identify with that? Raise your hand if you can identify. I'll be the first one. I can identify with Gideon's struggle easily. It's hard to trust the word of God when things are very difficult and harsh. It's easy for us to question the Lord's presence on the severity of our circumstances. It's very easy to discredit past stories uh, uh, given by the saints that there was a day in which God moved mightily. We say, well, good for those people, but where is he now? Where is God now in America? Where is God now in Scotland? Where is God now in my life? It's easy for us to blame God and say the real problem that we're facing with Midian is the Lord has abandoned us. The real problem with why I've lost my job and why my marriage is struggling is because the Lord has forsaken me. It's easy. It's easy to turn the tables in the midst of the consequences of our own sin and the stupidity of our own actions and turn the finger and blame God, is it not? Where is God with all these people dying of cancer? Where is God when the hurricane comes through? Where is God? can identify with that. And even the psalmist in Psalm 10 says, Lord... Why do you stand so far off? Lord, why do you hide in times of trouble? You're telling me the Lord is with us? What's interesting is, it's, the Lord's presence is right in front of him. His word has come to him. But he's so overtaken by the severity of his circumstances, he can't hear it, he can't see it. And I wonder if some of you are in that situation right now. The Lord is speaking to you right now from his word. The Lord is present with you right now in the midst of the congregation. He's not abandoned you. He's not, he's not gone silent on you. He's speaking to you now in the midst of your sorrow, in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your struggle. He has not forsaken you. It's hard for you to see it. But the Lord never forsakes his people. He always makes due on his promise. The Lord is indeed with Gideon. And he is indeed with us. But Gideon also struggles to believe that the Lord is able to use him because of his weakness. And I think that's also easy for us to identify with. Right? He says, do I not send you? And what does Gideon say? I'm the weakest. I'm the worst. You can't use me. You don't understand how inadequate I am. You don't understand what I've done in my life. You don't understand the decisions. You don't understand what I'm facing. Do you not understand how weak I am for the task? The Lord could not use me, Gideon concludes. And then these words that transform and flip the table upside down come to us just like, like a velvet hammer, soft and wonderful, but strong and powerful. Just two words, but I. But I, I know you, but I, I understand how weak you are, but I, I understand the nature of my own adequacy, the Lord says. I understand what I'm able to do, the Lord says. I'm, I'm fully engaged with your weakness, believe me, oh mighty man of valor. But I, 
But there's a game changer, Gideon. I will be with you. And some of you are sitting here this morning, you're saying, I can't be a parent. I can't be a dad. I can't be an employee. I can't steward. I can't give to that level. I can't sacrifice like that, Lord. I don't have it in me. I can't control my emotions. I don't have what it takes, Lord. I can't possibly serve the church in that way. It's not in me, God. I can't possibly be faithful to my wife. It's just not in me. I can't possibly make an impact in North Syracuse. I don't have what it takes. I can't share the gospel with my neighbor. I don't, I'm too weak. And he says, I know. I'm fully aware of that. But my calling of you is not on the basis of your adequacy. It's on the basis of mine. It's not on the basis of some inherent power that you have. It's on the basis of the inherent power that I have, which I'm going to give to you. I'm going to be with you. So if you're struggling as a dad, you're struggling as a spouse, you're struggling as a student, you're struggling as an employee, you're, fa- you, you're face-to-face with your failures as a follower of Jesus, the constant sins that you wrestle with, and you feel so weak and depleted and exhausted, and you wonder, how could God ever use me? He says, I'll be with you. I'll be with you, amen? That's what Gideon hears. But he still struggles. He asks for a sign the gift, the Lord provides it. He asked for the sign with the fleece twice. Not so sure about this, Lord. Why don't you make a fleece wet? Okay, well, why don't you make it dry? Some hero in the Bible, huh? He's struggling. And here's what we see, and I'm trying to speed up a little bit here. We see... Gideon struggled to believe, but we also see the Lord's patience with people that struggle to believe. You know, as a father, it's so easy when I tell my kids what to do, and they delay in doing so. There's this, like, lava thing inside. There's, like, this boiling point, you know, and sometimes the Lord is gracious with me to just well up some sort of gentleness and patience. But then there's other times where there's this evil harshness that just like, I said do it, move it. You know, it's hard to uh, imagine when we hear our children's voice or see our children's delay or disobedience. It's hard to imagine our God being patient with us as we struggle to obey and trust his word. But that's what we see the Lord doing here. We see a gracious and patient God in this narrative, do we not? He's patient. He sees Gideon struggle to believe. He's sensitively aware of his fears so much that he even provides his own sign to Gideon. Which, by the way, signs aren't virtuous. Don't go home and say, oh, Gideon saw the sign, so I'm going to too. No, 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 no. The scriptures show, and Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. It's not virtuous to ask for a sign. It's virtuous to hear the Lord's word and to obey it because you trust him without a sign. Okay? So, again, this isn't a be like Gideon moment. This is a, wow, God is patient with Gideon when he lives out his faith and asks for a sign. Because the truth is, the Lord didn't need to do that. 
Gideon didn't need more assurance than he already had, the presence and word of God. The Lord is patient with Gideon's unbelief, and he reassures him along the way. He's patient with us. He's not harsh like we can be with our children. He knows our weaknesses. He sees our doubts. He recognizes our fears as, he hear, as we hear his call. He's patient. He keeps saying it, but I'll be with you. I'm going to save through you. I know you're afraid, I don't, but I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. He's patient. It's almost like that story in the Gospels where the man who has a son that is overtaken by an unclean spirit, right? And the guy comes to Jesus. Heal my son. Jesus says, believe. What does the guy say? I believe, but help my unbelief. And then Jesus heals him. There's a recognition that there's a sincere faith, but it's not perfect. Right? God calls us to sincerity, but he doesn't expect us to be perfect as we walk in relationship to him in this life. None of us can conjure up a perfect faith. Only Jesus Christ was able to accomplish that. We always walk faithfully, yet subject to fears and insecurities, needing reassurance. And I'm not telling you to ask for a sign, but what I'm telling you is this, that in the midst of your struggle to trust God's word and to believe that God is with you, that he is graciously patient and forbearant with you. He's with you. He's walking with you. I know, disciples, I told you to go make disciples of all nations. I know that's a ridiculous task for 12 people. But I'm with you always to the end of the age. What a powerful thing. He's patient with our inabilities and our weaknesses and our struggles. He knows we're scared. He knows the call is more than we can handle. And yet he empowers us for the task. Verse 34. The Lord clothed Gideon. On what basis can Gideon move forward in the calling that he has? On his own strength? On his own might? Everyone say no. Go ahead. No. It's on the basis of the Lord's presence, his clothing of Gideon. What a wonderful thing. The Lord clothes Gideon, patient with him, and then he clothes him. And now we wonder, okay, he's heard our cries, he's responded with his word, and he is calling his servant, but will he gain the victory? Chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, And all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Arad. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I will say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog lapped, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. 
And the number of those who laughed, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. And give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go away, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent. But he retained 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp. For I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. And then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of these lay in the, along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. And when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. And as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies, put trumpets into the hands of all of them, and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come down to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him camp came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands, Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as, as, as Beth Shitta toward Zerarah, as far as the border of Abel Mahola by Tabak. Very difficult words. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And then they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and they killed Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. This as well is the word of the Lord. 
And all God's people said, amen. Are you kidding me? Right? Like, uh, just from a human fleshly perspective, you look at the way in which this goes out, and you can, you can say this for sure. It is the Lord that saves us. It is the Lord that saves us in a way that only He can do for a glory only He deserves. That's really what we see time and time again in Judges. And I think it's crystal clear in this passage. When it comes to saving us from the depths of our sin, it is the Lord that saves. It is not us. It is not our own strength. It is the Lord that saves us in a way that only He can save for a glory that He alone deserves. Understand this. They had 32,000 people. And the Lord in His wisdom said, too many. So they get it down to 10,000. He says, no, it's too much for me. Too much, too much for me to do the, in a way that I want to for what I want to do it for. Really, there's too much of you in the process of salvation. And if there's too much of you in the way of salvation, that you might conclude that by my own hand I've been saved. We have to come to grips with the nature of salvation. There can be none of us in it. There can be none of us in salvation. None of our own righteousness, none of our own merit, none of our own efforts, none of our own works. Because if any of us comes into the way of salvation, guess what? We will conclude that by my own hand I have been saved. And so the Lord looks at 32,000 people and the Lord looks at us and he says, there's too much of you in the way that you're seeing your salvation. There's too much of you. So he reduces the army to 300. And then he says, now, here's the plan. You're going to grab a trumpet in one hand. You're going to grab a, 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 a jar in another hand that has a torch in it. And you 300 people are going to divide into three groups. And you're going to go around the camp. And here's what you're going to do. Okay, you're going to blow the trumpet. And then you're going to throw down the jars. And then you're going to yell for the Lord and for Gideon. And then I'll take care of the rest. Guys, you would never in your possible imagination come up with such a plan to defeat an army that's the size of the sand on the seashore. Tell, raise your hand if you thought that would, that would have been your first strategy. Here's an idea. Here's how we're going to beat Midian. We're going to reduce the army from 32,000 to 300, and then we're going to give everybody a trumpet and a jar with a light in it, and then we're just going to scream. You know, you wonder, like, is this really solid war strategy? Like, is this really going to get the job done? You see, that's the way the Lord saves. And I'm just going to wrap up with this. He saves us in a way that defies human logic. He saves us in a way that goes against human convention, against what we might expect. He does it in a way that confounds our own wisdom. And he does it in a way that highlights our weakness and his strength. That's how God saves. You look at this story and you don't see a strong, brave, fearless warrior that, is, that, is, that has the might and the valor to conquer many armies. What you see is a, fear, a fearful, flawed, uh, hesitant, scared out of his mind leader who God uses to put on display his saving power of his people. That's what God is doing here and that's the nature of salvation. The Lord saves us powerfully through weakness, right? It's the fearful, flawed leader that we see that points to the, the Lord's power to save. 
It's the handful of soldiers that points to the Lord's power to save. It's the sound of a trumpet, the breaking of jars, the shouting voices that we go, oh, it was the Lord's power to save that caused all this salvation. And then we look at the symbol over my head, the tree, the cross of Calvary, and we say, if there's anything that has ever defied human logic, human strategy, and said, that is the way that God is going to save me, it is the cross of Jesus Christ. No one saw Jesus, uh, his person in this world, as some, uh, something attractive to be, to be uh, uh, drawn to. No one saw his birth as something amazing and dignified in a manger in Nazareth. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. No one saw the way he taught and, and, and was able to look at it and see, yeah, that's, that's the way God is going to save us. Matter of fact, if, if, you're, if you're the chosen one, get down from the cross. What a joke you are. The world looked at Jesus and said, Bah humbug. Rubbish. No thanks. That's silly. Why would God ever save anybody through the death of his son on a cross? But this is the exact way that God has accomplished his salvation of what his people face more than anything else the horrible nature of their hearts, and the sin that is in them. If you're here today and you've never heard that message of salvation, hear it, that God has saved you in a way that only He can, in a way that you would never have imagined, for a glory in your life that He alone deserves in Jesus Christ. You see, Gideon was faithful, according to Hebrews, in the sense that he trusted the Lord, but imperfectly. And as such, as an imperfect leader, uh, he only was able to save the people of God for a temporary period of time from a physical enemy. But it is through the perfect work of Jesus Christ, his perfect leadership, his fearless obedience, albeit blood that came from his brow, the intensity of his circumstance. He continued to trust in the Lord's word. He continued to obey the Lord's calling. And he took every step on the way to the cross of Calvary. And he died for you. And he died for me. And he did what only he could do. Save us from our sin in a way that only he could for a glory he alone deserves. So this passage, like every other passage in Judges, calls us to recognize that the Lord hears our cry for salvation. The Lord raises up a servant. His name is Jesus. And the Lord saves in a way that only he can. That's the gospel, people. That's what we preach every week. That it's not your hand that will save you. It is not your merit. It is not your works. It is the merit, the righteousness, the work, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ in your place for your sin that will bring you out of the cave of your sin and bring you home where you belong safely in his arms. Amen? The Lord hears, the Lord calls, and the Lord saves. Let's pray. Father, we give you all the praise and all the glory for your salvation that comes in a way that we would never have expected. Lord, we confess to you our imperfect faith, our skepticism that you're with us, and our skepticism that you would ever use us. And here today, we come to the the truth, as shocking as it is, 
that you are powerful enough to use, powerful enough to save, when we can't, you do, O God. And for that, you deserve our singing, our praying, our giving, our obedience, our faith, our our life, our hearts, and our loves. May you have it now, in Christ's name, amen.